0: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating.
1: I try and write to make people feel successful about themselves in the kitchen. Mm. That's the part I want to communicate, is that you'll feel better if you do this a little more often. It'll make you happy. It'll fill up your soul. You'll feel good about yourself. You'll spend less money. You'll be healthier. You'll just feel better if you cook.
0: Rachel Ray is a star cook with popular books and television shows. But for her, I think, the point isn't just to eat well. It's also that food is a fundamental way of relating to the people around us. I visited Rachel on her show, and we cooked up a couple of pasta dishes together. Then we sat down at the table, and while I slurped up my rigatoni and her spaghetti, we talked about everything from the power of food in our lives to toasted spaghetti. That's right, toasted spaghetti. I had never heard of it either. Rachel, I'm so glad you're doing this podcast with me, because we talk a lot about communicating in many different ways all kinds of different ways. And this is the first time we've ever been able to talk about communicating with food or through food.
1: You know, and I love that, you know, you're finally getting to that message because for me, the reason I like working in food is that it is such a great conduit. It's such a great communicator. And it does things that words can't do. It can connect you with literally who you are, with generations that we've lost. You know, I miss my grandfather. In a lot of ways, he was like my dad to me. He was my best friend when I was a little girl and he lived in our house. And I miss him. But when I make things that he loves, I'm with him. Mm. And it's food is is more powerful than words in some ways because it appeals to all of your senses, you know? So it really is like I'm physically. With him and back you know, in I, all these moments.
0: I had a, such a similar experience. <clears throat> as somebody had heard my father's recipe on the radio. Mm-hmm. He did a radio show for a while and he gave a recipe for Italian Easter cake. <laughs> and she sent me the recipe. So sweet. And either we made it or we found a place to get it. So I was connected to my father, but through the conduit of the radio through the show. Food. Through th- And through the food.
1: And you know, when you're poor, food can take you anywhere in the world. I couldn't afford to travel when I was young, but I could go any place I wanted, you know? I could have Morocco in my living room, you know?
0: You really thought of it that way?
1: You know, I always thought of food that way. Uh, food can take you any place you want to go that you don't have the time or the money to get to. It can connect you with people that you miss. Um, and, and, you it, know, when you it, go
0: to a foreign country, it's so interesting. The food is an expression of the culture. Almost you know, every time you go, they say, do you like our food?
1: Do you know what I start with? Every time I travel anywhere, whether it's in our wonderful, brilliant, super wide country that's like 50 different countries in one, whenever I go to a place that's new to me... Uh, foreign or domestic, I go to the marketplace first. Mm. And I get to know the people that live there. And when I travel, I try more often than not to rent a place that has a kitchen so I can feel what it's like to be a person of that culture, you know? I can go and shop and get to know some of the locals and talk to them about what they love and how they cook it, and then I get to go play, you know?
0: But don't you ever take a day off from cooking? Never, never. The only vacation
1: I take every year is for my anniversary, and for my anniversary, we invite about 40 friends. We've cut way back. It used to be over 100. And we bring them with us to Italy, where we were married, and I rent a... uh, Uh, kind of a villa house thing that's got a huge kitchen and I go immediately from the airport to the kitchen immediately and I cook for 40 people for the whole weekend for all of the big feasts and it's what I do for fun and when I go home on the weekends I cook for my mom for the week she's 84 and she has a little macular degeneration so she can't see in the middle so it's hard for her to cook and she cooked Mm -hmm. for 55 years in restaurants so I I like to go home and I cook ahead for mom. And we always have uh, friends that come up so that I have an audience. It's like my husband, he's a lawyer by day, but he's really a musician at heart, that's his soul. And my husband has to have people to play for and I have to have people to cook for, do you know what I mean? I I do. I have to always have people in my home to cook for and I have to cook ahead. It makes me feel whole. And this is the next part of the communication of food that's different than the communication of words. There is a sense of pride and it's a big self-esteem builder. To learn how to cook and prepare food and to be able to live on very little money Mm. changes the quality of the rest of your life. Mm. If you can take a little bit of money and go to the grocery store and know how to take dried beans, root vegetables, one chicken, and use all of the parts of something, and to be able to sustain yourself for not a lot of cash, it's a huge factor in your life. You know, you never get scared that you're going to run out of this or that. You feel a, a different sense of I'm going to be okay. It's like a security blanket. Knowing how to cook. That's why I think it's so important to teach children and to make them comfortable being in a kitchen from the time they're little, little babies, literally, because it's such an important tool for the rest of their life, whether they're gonna be a rocket scientist or a doctor or a surgeon or whatever, everybody should have those basic skills that we use to make part of our promise in our public school system. Yeah. One of the things I'm most angry about, a lot makes me angry, I'm Sicilian, so. I'm a volatile little person. But something that really disappoints me, yeah. and I would never trade my passport, I'm so proud to be an American, uh, the only reason I have what I have and that my family has everything, you have know, roof over our head and food in our fridge and all of our blessings is because I'm an American. My story could have not happened anywhere else in the world, in my opinion. But one thing that breaks my heart is the difference in the quality of public education from when I was a girl to today. When I was a girl in public school, everybody got home ec, shop. Everybody got basic toolkit of how to provide for themselves and you could graduate public high school and go to work. Yeah, but And you Mm -hmm. could be proud of it. You could go to work and be a mechanic or a line cook or work in a restaurant. You had life skills that are necessary in my opinion, but you also had training. So you could literally leave high school and go to work. And you had time together to socialize. We had recess and it was a big deal. We had long lunch times, long lunch periods. Kids now get as little as 15 to 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. They don't communicate with each other the same. They get very limited, if they're lucky, recess at all. We've cut back on everything, on the arts, on their physical activity, on the quality of school food. I worked with the Obamas for 11 years and with the Clintons before them trying to improve the quality of school food. It is the only even playing field we have to feed our children, those that are at risk of going hungry and those that are suffering from adult disease because their quality of food is so poor. The only place we can get them all good nutrition is through our schools. And we got the first hike in 10 cents a kid in more than a decade. And it was taken away two days into this administration, two Mm -hmm. days after. Uh, President Trump took the White House. And no matter how you vote, I don't think that's acceptable. Period. So, you know, there's a lot that I miss um, from my childhood, and I think that's why I have a job. Because people don't learn simple skills, like how to make dinner or, or cook for themselves.
0: How, how, how did you get from loving to cook mm. to being so good at communicating that to the rest of us. I mean, you're an extraordinary communicator. I think
1: that that's my grandpa, um, was a very creative man. Here's an example. He was my best friend when I was a girl and he used to play cards, set and Scopa, with his friends, the Runzo boys. And we would get the Italian paper, which you could only get like once a week, you know, at the big newsstand. So he'd bring home the OG in Italia, but it was old, you know, several yeah, days too yeah. late. And I, I, we had a shortwave radio that never worked. So he would put on a headset and Pretend like he was listening to the game, <laughs> but he was reading it from a days-old paper. But he'd he'd react as if it was yeah. all being played out in front of his friends.
0: So he was, he was he would perform for it them. He was the first theater.
1: Oh, right, exactly. Yeah. So he was terrific at that. And when I was a little girl, he valued reading and his ability to read in English so much. We I I was taught to read by my grandpa before I went to school. Mm. And we would read aloud to each other. So it was not just about the presentation of the book, but about being able to tell him the story back and Uh, to make up the different voices and to be the different characters. And I remember when I went to kindergarten in Mashpee uh, Central School, my grandfather made me wear my good shoes and a dress. And I hate dresses. My grandpa made me wear a dress and my best shoes, and I could pick out my favorite books to bring to school with me. And I went to school, and the other little boys and girls had not been taught to read yet. And my teacher took away my books. And I immediately burst
0: into tears. Why did she take away your books? It went downhill because the
1: other children didn't know how to read yet. You mean? So I wasn't allowed to have books. Unfair
0: to them. Right,
1: because the rest of the class didn't know how to read yet. So I was going to share my books with everybody, but my teacher took them away. And then I got made fun of because all the other kids were in dungarees. They call them jeans now, but my mom used to call them dungarees. Everybody else in dungarees in their cool new sweaters. And I'm in a dress <laughs> and like Italian dress shoes. Yeah. So I got made fun of for that. And then when it really hit the fan was when we went to lunch. We had lunchtime, right? And then nappy time after lunchtime. Well, everybody else takes out their like, you know, their Cheetos or Doritos or their poppy tart things or whatever they have or the bologna sandwich. <laughs> I pull out my lunch and he packed my favorite lunch, which is a sardine sandwich. (laughs) And my lunch smelled so bad. All the other kids called me smelly.
0: (laughs) Smelly.
1: So I have no books. I'm dressed different from everybody. I was ostracized in kindergarten. Thank God the gas crisis came along. Our restaurants went bankrupt and we had to move to upstate New York because clearly I'd have never had a friend in all of school if I had stayed in Cape Cod.
0: (laughs) And from that, you became a TV star. (laughs)
1: Yes, that was my training, (laughs) exactly. Plus, I think anybody who's got a Sicilian blood in them anywhere, we are really good at being overly dramatic about absolutely everything. But I was this way, you know, a big talker and would tell the story of everything and be the boss of what people were going to do with the food I sold them when I worked in marketplaces and restaurants, too. Uh-huh. I would tell people what they should order and why. or I would tell people what to make with the ingredients that I was helping them procure when we, I was in Macy's Marketplace or in Agaton Valentina. Like, I'm just bossy and I like to talk
0: a lot. Well, yeah, but <laughs> you talk about interesting things. For instance, his you you, would, you seem to like to attach a historical story to the food.
1: I do, because I think that it's really important, especially in a country as young as ours, uh-huh. to understand the importance of our origins, where we all come from and where our food comes from, and uh, the life skills that are a component to all of these things. I'm a curious person, and I think you remain curious if you continue that learning process and you're if you're always gathering information, you want to share that information. That's the point of it, is it, to share. It
0: makes the food taste, and I wouldn't say it makes the food taste different, but it gives you a different angle on the food. There's an, an extra pleasure associated with if, if there's an interesting story, like, like the is. pasta that we made <clears throat> exactly. on the show. Uh, with the... Uh, Four uh,
1: ingredients, and it goes yeah. back hundreds of years. Yeah. And the difference between Pecorino, Romano, and Parmigiano. No. Because you said that you had a four-ingredient recipe that goes back, dates back hundreds of years, yes, well,
0: to uh, 1841. Wow. Yeah, and it's the first time apparently that pasta and tomatoes were mixed in the same recipe. 1841. That's late. You would think it'd be much earlier. You
1: think it would have happened much earlier? Yeah,
0: with the, the guy who came back from China. He says, "I got this pasta. Who's got a tomato?" <laughs>
1: Them beautiful
0: marriages made. On Rachel's show, we had each made one of our favorite pasta dishes. My recipe has a twist that usually comes as a surprise even to experienced chefs like Rachel. You don't boil the pasta. Instead, the dry pasta soaks up the flavor of the olive oil and the juice of the tomatoes and cooks in that. Now, I learned this recipe in an interesting way. How? On my 50th birthday, Arlene, my wife, took me and a couple of friends, a few friends to Florence to take cooking lessons from Giuliano Bujali. Wow! It was wonderful. Earl, all morning long, you cook and drink wine.
1: I was married in Florence, so oh, this, that's
0: right. this yeah. is why yeah.
1: we're, we're right here.
0: And then you eat the pasta, you eat whatever you oh. make, and then you go to sleep.
1: Now mine...
0: Then it was Rachel's turn to cook, and her recipe also had a surprise twist, at least to me.
1: So, to make mine, you start with dry pasta also. There's a lot of similarities to his. You toast the spaghetti so that the pasta itself is nutty and fragrant.
0: How do you keep the spaghetti in a toaster?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Very carefully, Alan, very carefully. You toast the spaghetti in a little bit of butter and or olive oil, your choice. When it's brown and nutty. When we
0: were cooking together, you kept talking about toasted spaghetti. Yes. What the hell is that? I, I tried to figure it out and I couldn't I couldn't it's get it. It's
1: exactly what it sounds like. When you toast anything, you develop its flavor. In food, color equals flavor. So when you're cooking a steak, you want that reddish brown crust and crunch on the outside. You want to develop the sugars in the protein. When you're cooking a pasta, if you toast it first, it develops this nutty undertone if the, if the spaghetti turns brown in the pan before you add the liquid and you cook it in the liquid, two things will happen. The, you get more starch because it's cooking in very small amount of liquid instead of in a large pot of boiling water. And if you toast it first, you have this other layer of flavor because of the process of toasting the pasta.
0: So what, to make pasta toasted... You'd you put, put it in a pan with butter water
1: or olive oil butter
0: or olive oil and you
1: heat the pan to about between medium and medium high and you add the pasta and you brown it brown it brown it when it's really nutty and fragrant per pound of pasta you add 1 quart of liquid water chicken stock whatever you want. and
0: like. th- at this point you start boiling it
1: that's right then you bring it up to a boil and yeah. you let all of that liquid absorb it's kind of like making a risotto, but you're doing it with pasta rather than sugar. I've never short heard of rice.
0: this. This is so interesting. Yeah. But when you talk about this, you talk like a chemist. You talk <laughs> well, about a the sugar content. And and yeah. how, how did you get a uh, hold of that information?
1: Again, it's all that, you know, if you're a curious person, you're just a curious person. Why did does you, that Did you well? study
0: this at a No,
1: no. I went to school for communications and economics and all the things. I didn't need to go to school for food. You know, I went to the Culinary Institute of my mother. We all grew up working in restaurants from the time before we had working papers. Mm -hmm. My mom did not like strangers watching her kids. So we had very few babysitters over the years. My grandpa was my caretaker when I was little. Mm -hmm. He lived with us until he passed away. Um, And my mom would take us with her to work. We would go to the restaurant with mom, and we'd sit in the back booth in the kitchen, do our homework, and, you know, uh, go about life so we could be near mom. She could keep an eye on us. I mean, we were all cleaning out walk-ins, peeling shrimp, uh, helping unload big boxes way before we had working papers. She should probably be in jail for breaking child (laughs) labor laws. But, you know, it, it... It does so much for you for the rest of your life. It makes you appreciate work. Work is a privilege, it's not a right. And you really get to love that feeling if you work from a very early age. It becomes a necessary part of your day. I don't relax well. I, 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 don't, I don't like the feeling at the end of the day unless I've been busy at things. Yeah. And I need to exhaust my mind and my body, and it's because that's the course of my life. My grandfather was a stonemason, and he would work all day, go home and tend his gardens, literally all night. And if the Northern Lights would come out, he'd go wake his children. My mother was the first of 10. He was one of 14 he would go wake his children and bring them outside so they could see the light show the free light show and he'd sing to them
0: and when did he get any sleep
1: he didn't that's the point that that's who i come from it's more important to have a quality of life i don't think that quantity and quality uh, should be uh, equal things you know i i don't want a lot of free time it's more fun to be awake and alive and thinking and doing things and Singing and telling jokes and telling stories and cooking is so much more fun than sleeping. Sleeping's a bore, you know what I mean? It's <laughs> I, like a real drag.
0: I get a lot of work done <laughs> while I sleep. So do you, do you? When you cook for people? Yeah. Do you think about the people while you're cooking, or are mm-hmm. you just in the cooking zone?
1: I can't stand it when people ask me what my favorite meal is, because anybody that cooks for a living, or anybody that really loves cooking, you're never cooking for yourself. You're always cooking for the the person, you're thinking of them when you're making that food. If I sit home just by myself, and I'm not cooking for my mom or my husband, make something very simple, beans and greens, You know, white beans and some escarole and some chicken broth, or I'll make a sandwich or something, or or scrambled eggs I love, and you can mix in anything in the fridge. What makes me excited about cooking is who I'm cooking for. Mm -hmm. The point of cooking Uh, Another way that food communicates, it fills your soul. It's a really kind of a a spiritual, it's almost like a meditation. And to make that the most complete is to cook for someone else. To see that, look, it's like when a kid opens a present they really want versus the underwear or the socks (laughs) or the pajamas. You know that face when they open a box and they're like, oh, yeah, love that. You know what I mean? But when they open something wonderful, it's like, (sighs) "Ah." When you cook for people, you're going for that every time you Don't want to see, even if it's a scrambled egg or, or a grilled cheese, you want them to take a bite and just be able to see on their face. I can't stand not seeing the first bite if people come over to dinner, <laughs> yeah. even if I'm still doing nine things, yeah. I have to just peek in and make sure that that first bite gets that look.
0: But how do you get that special look when everybody around the table has a different regimen they're following? Pescatarian, vegetarian, vegan, no carbs, all carbs, fasting? When we come back, Rachel deals with special eaters. And why the first words Rachel spoke were vino, vino, right after this.
2: On December 14, 2020, End Blindness will make history by awarding the first-ever Sanford and Sue Greenberg Prize to End Blindness. Thirteen pioneering scientists will share $3 million in prizes for their groundbreaking scientific and medical contributions to end blindness permanently and universally. The Greenberg Prize Award ceremony, which will stream online, brings together luminaries from arts, sciences, entertainment, and politics, including Art Garfunkel, Margaret Atwood, Al Gore, Michael Bloomberg, and more. The award ceremony will also feature a moving tribute to the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a longtime supporter of the End Blindness movement, including extensive footage of Justice Ginsburg reading from Hello Darkness, Mild Friend, the memoir of End Blindness 2020 co-founder Sanford D. Greenberg. If you want to learn more about End Blindness, you can read about it in Hello Darkness, Mild Friend. And for a special treat, you can listen to the book read by Art Garfunkel. For more, go to SanfordGreenberg.com. Join us on December 14th, 2020 at 7 p.m. Eastern at www.endblindness2020.com to be a part of this historic moment. That's endblindness2020.com.
0: This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Rachel Ray. Now, how do you handle this nowadays? Everybody's got a different routine, different mm-hmm. regimen. the the, round you the table, yourself, this one yeah. can't eat fat. This one can only eat fat. This one can't eat vegetables. This one can only. Well. well, my
1: mother would not have dealt with that back in the day. My mother did did not and would not understand pescatarian, vegetarian, vegan, and all of that. Yeah, I try and educate myself, and there are people in my life that I I deeply love and respect that over the years have made moral decisions about becoming a vegan or a vegetarian. And some people that truly have physical ailments and they literally cannot eat gluten. And I get that. And And I have had to educate myself as to how to cook that way. On the other hand, there's people that are just kind of fussy or it's chic for them. And
0: you cook for them, but you resent it. Uh, yeah, so, I have okay, to okay, tell no, here's, you the
1: truth. I don't invite them to my house. Oh, because I if was going I to say they're only doing a put on or they're doing yeah. it because it's trendy. Yeah. I would be happy to meet them for a cocktail. But I'm picky about who comes to my home. So I, if, I don't you, don't if you making- happen
0: to be cooking for somebody yeah. who you don't like as much as the other person you're cooking for at the same time. Well, how do you do you cook differently? You cook more...
1: I don't bring people to my home I don't want to cook for. My grandpa was like this too. I guess I'm my grandpa's daughter or something or grandpa's little girl because grandpa made wine and he had different barrels, right? And he would grade them five to number one. Barrel number one was for close family, special occasions, and people that he really, really loved. And it went all the way down to basically... Not not
0: good wine.
1: <laughs> and you could always tell what he thought of someone.
0: By which barrel? By which barrel. You, so exactly. you'd, be, you'd be watching him as a kid and exactly. see which barrel his grandpa You know, going. my
1: first word was vino because grandpa got sick of chasing the Similac across the room. My mom uh, kept us all on formula. She didn't breastfeed. She's a tiny little lady. And she just, it was, she was like, this is painful and no thank you. Uh, So we were all brought up on formula. So
0: he gave you vino instead of formula? So he
1: got sick of chasing the the formula bottle because I would throw, literally, chuck the bottle across the room at my, my crib. So he got fed up with it. So he started taking the bottle and filling it with water and adding a little of his fancy wine. And he would hold up my baba and go, vino, 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 vino. <laughs> so there's a little Polaroid of me as a child in a high chair, one of those hook-on ones that are illegal
0: now because they kill yeah. children. The whole, this whole story is illegal. Yeah. <laughs>
1: and uh, it has my hand reaching up in the air and it says, Rachel's first word, vino, vino. I thought I was asking for my baba. Uh, yeah. But it, it looks like I'm making a a toast at a big party.
0: Oh, no!
1: You know that's so different. Everybody thought I was a good baby, but really I was just (laughs) bomb. I had really rosy cheeks, (laughs) and I was the life of the party.
0: (laughs) This is so different from one of my grandsons, whose first two words that he ever put together, because his mother didn't like to cook. (laughs) So the first two words he put together were "eat out."
1: Well, my, that's, I got one that's really funny to crack you up. My little nephew, little Andy, you know, it's just like the, the Goodfellas movie. Everybody in the family for generations is John or Andy. My <laughs> yeah. husband, my husband's brother, my father-in-law, everybody's John or Andy. It's ridiculous. It's like just like Goodfellas, right, at the wedding scene. So anyway, little Andy, his first two words no joke, scotch and boobs. <laughs>
0: scotch and boobs.
1: Scotch and yeah. boobs. He liked his mom's boobs. Yeah. And my husband, John, his, his nickname's Johnny Walker because he loves scotch so much. He used to take his fingers, dip them in the scotch glass, and put them in the kid's mouth so oh, he'd God. stop crying. Oh, so the kid <laughs> learned scotch and boobs before anything
0: else. That beats Eat out. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear some more about how you communicate about food. For instance, it seems to me one of the most basic things, one of the most important things that we communicate with are directions, like how to get to my house, uh-huh. how to cook a meatloaf. Do you, uh, people give directions in the worst possible way. I know somebody who said once, take, take this certain road, go until you think you've gone too far... <laughs> And then turn left.
1: That sounds like all of my neighbors. I live way up in the mountains. (laughs) So that's actually, go until you go past the big thing. You'll see the thing on the right. And then make your second left after that thing. So how
0: do you deliver a recipe? I'm very specific
1: about this. Very specific. I've written over 20 cookbooks. And I think the reason my cookbooks were successful over the years is because I write in freehand equivalents. Marcella Hazan said to put uh, measurements to a cook is to, uh, a cage is to a bird. Uh-huh. It's like putting a, a bird in a cage. Uh-huh. So <clears throat> I try and write so that people understand the feeling of cooking. Mm-hmm. I write a tablespoon of olive oil or one turn of the pan. Oh. I write one teaspoon or a third of a palmful. And I teach that way on the show. A third of a palm full of this. I never use measuring equipment on the show, unless we're baking. You have to for for certain things. But largely, I write like I'm telling a story and chit-chatting. And when I write for the magazine or for the books, I always put a head note. There has to be some story there. Anybody can cook, really. You can teach anyone to cook to some degree. What makes people want to cook, I think, different authors food is the story that they're telling Mm. and there are different types of chefs there are some chefs and cooks that write books and it's aspirational it's the best or the most beautiful right i write accessible i write food that i know i write different food for my family than i write for the tv show i do some things at home i would probably never do on the tv because they're too labor intensive or maybe there's a quirky ingredient I try and write to make people feel successful about themselves in the kitchen. Mm. That's the part I wanna communicate, is that you'll feel better if you do this a little more often. It'll make you happy, it'll fill up your soul, you'll feel good about yourself, you'll spend less money, you'll be healthier, you'll just feel better if you cook. So I try and write to make people excited Mm. about painting the picture in their head when they read the food. I want them to see in their heads themselves doing it, and oh my God, I can totally do this. Yeah. I want them to get excited before they ever walk into the kitchen.
0: So it, just mechanically, do, do you have an order in which you tell people about how to yes, always. The thing? Yes,
1: You what? write a recipe in the order that you use the ingredients, or at least I do, um, and you write the method in the way that makes the most sense for pockets of time. While this thing is moving forward, you could be doing this thing over here.
0: Uh-huh. And I
1: always write everything, every single recipe I've ever written for the television show, everything I've ever cooked in my entire house, everything I write for the magazine. All of those thousands of things started with pencil and paper. I have to write with pencil and paper first or I can't see it in my head. I don't know why that is, but I sleep literally next to my bed are pencils and paper Everything I've done is in a composition notebook for decades and decades. It's all all over my cellar. So do you wake
0: up? Do you wake up having solved cooking problems?
1: Yes, absolutely. I cook in my head constantly, like people write music or I doodle in my head. I, I also draw a lot in my head. That's why I design furniture and cookware and stuff. I, I see it in my head first and then I put it on paper and then I could put it into, translate it into a computer and send it wherever it has to go. And when something doesn't work, like the first thing I designed for the kitchen was a set of pots, an eight quart pot and a five quart pot, like a brother and sister pot that were wrecked. uh, ovals instead of round because I had this tiny little stove that wasn't as big as a normal stove and I could never put two round pots next to each other on the stove. I had this little old and only three of the burners worked and I could never make pasta sauce and pasta at the same time. It drove me insane. So I drew on a piece of paper. If I had an oval skillet that was this deep and it had a lid and it could go in and out of the oven and if it had two handles on it, I could roast in it. I could cook soups and stews and pastas. And because it was oval instead of round, I could angle it on the stove. And then if I had a deeper pot, I could make 12 ears of corn or three pounds of spaghetti if I was cooking for a crowd. Or I could put in a giant pork roast or I could put a standing rib roast in it. So if I had these two pans and they could go on the stove or in the oven, if I had those, just those two pans if I wanted to make a grilled cheese, I can make it in the five quart. If I wanted to make one steak, I can make it in there. But if I wanted to make chipino or super stew or chili, I could also make it in there. If I want to make food for an army, I could make it this one. If I only had those two pans, I wouldn't need anything else except a colander and a knife, right? So I drew them on but a paper towel. But they didn't sell
0: pans like this?
1: Never, you? I designed them, they're mine. I made them up. So I drew them on a paper towel and I gave them to my now husband, my then boyfriend, And I said, I have to work, I can't go. You gotta go to the fancy food show. find some pot and pan people and show them this and see if anybody wants my pans. Whoa. So my husband went like, you know, door to door and my favorite was a company called Meyer. They had this hard anodized that's way tougher than stainless steel. It's nonstick. It conducts heat really evenly. You have to have a really sturdy construction because it's oval, you need the whole pan to stay boiling. If the, if the heat right? is coming exactly. up to the center, so you've you got to have, get the heat right, to spread. So, right. So it has to be like a really sturdy pot.
0: Yeah. So, so wait, he, were, you, were you already famous before you? I was,
1: know I just started at Food Network, but I, I mean, I just started. I mean, I had so a job.
0: You, you really had to sell these pants.
1: I had a job, but it wasn't like I was, whoa, you know? Right. It yeah. was just like, okay, she's employed. Maybe they'll be interested, you know, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. So he went, and they thought it was pretty cool, and they took a meeting, and I drew some more stuff, and we've been working together ever since. Now we have, we've made, not me like the the brand has made about a billion dollars. Whoa, It's incredible. We have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of SKUs and uh, all kinds of all kinds of different products, but it all started with drawings. And so now I took that experience and I went to furniture people and I said, what the heck I was totally unqualified for that job let me see if the furniture industry wants to work with me too (laughs) and our first year selling furniture we got nominated for all these furniture awards like the furniture oscars and everybody else's name has all these letters behind it
0: yeah yeah (laughs) because
1: they're all famous designers and architects and stuff and then it just says rachel ray (laughs) well
0: nobody has that in front of it What else do you design? Do you design clothing?
1: I just, des- I, funny you should say that, Alan Alda, because I just started designing accessories and they come out this March, this spring. So, Handbags. what?
0: Like, what's an accessory?
1: Handbags and oh. belts from the totally sustainable uh, vegetable dyed natural leathers. Mm-hmm. In Italy, there's a very small group of people left, and they're like a little co op. There's very few people that are left on the planet Earth that do this. It's an apprentice program, passed from one generation to the next, and it's a completely sustainable circle of life. It's beautiful. Absolutely no chemicals are used. Animals grow up on a farm, they run around, they're used for food, obviously, but then they're naturally tanned, no chemicals used, dyed any color in the rainbow with only vegetable dyes, and all of the byproduct can go right back into the earth. No contaminants, no chemicals whatsoever. So I wanted to take these leathers that are only being used for the world's most expensive handbags, bags that cost thousands of dollars, which I think is insane. And we went there in Italy to meet these families to say, what's the great, what's the best price you can work with us on? And we want to make your products more accessible, therefore you'll be in business longer since Mm. you're the last few people on the planet that do this. This is something for your next generation and the next generation. We wanna make these bags, but more for the people. We want to charge a couple of hundred bucks instead of several thousand dollars. Mm. So our bags are between two and five hundred instead of five hundred to fifteen thousand. Yeah, it's insane what people spend on handbags. What do you
0: have left to put in the bag?
1: I know, right? Exactly. And we're working on a canvas. And because they're natural and vegetable tan, you can carry them in the rain, nothing happens to them. Whoa, like, the bags no still look good, even in the rain. You don't have to Whoa. put special sprays on them or hide them away. Or <laughs> It's so great. And it's really exciting because, like with our uh, furniture lines, we do everything we can do in America. We do in America. Like, we have over 600-and-something upholsterers now, and they didn't have enough upholsterers that worked in the factory in the Carolinas. We brought back people that were put into early retirement, and now they're training another generation of apprenticeship. It's
0: like what you do with the food. It's more than just eating. You
1: have to look at the whole circle of
0: We talk a lot about improvising, and while we were talking, I was wondering, when you were talking about measuring, Mm. does that... Tie in with how much you f- you feel free to improvise when you cook. Yes,
1: but I, I also want people to make that recipe their own when they make it. I don't yeah. want it to be identical to mine. I want it to be similar. But I want so them to get used to, to tasting the food and saying, I would have put more chili powder right, in that, Rachel Ray. Right. I would have done this differently. And that's what I love after being in this business for so long, a couple of decades now, is that people will stop me in grocery stores or at the movie theater or something and say, I make that for my husband. But I do it with this, or uh, I added yeah. that. And I get so excited. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's amazing. I'm going to try it that way.
0: And you've helped them be creative.
1: I love that. That's what's so fun about it. And that's why I love getting kids in the kitchen. You get so many great ideas when you watch children cook because they know no rules. Yeah. They have no rules. They'll put peanut butter in a pasta sauce, and you'll be like... Wow, that's delicious! <laughs> they, they just do such crazy stuff, and it makes me so excited.
0: So, look, I... I... I wish we could spend more time, but our time is coming to an end. That's but such a drag. I know, but meanwhile... Can we do a part two? We, we, I, we, we already got that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like Rachel just shut up. Say goodnight, Gracie.
0: <laughs> no, before we go, can we do our seven quick questions sure. that invite seven quick answers? Mm-hmm. rapid-fire questions.
1: Yeah, people have tried this for decades, Alan yeah, Alder. Let, know, just to let I you know. know, hasn't worked yet. There's nothing nothing that's a short answer that comes out of this big mouth, but I'll try so
0: these are questions mainly, vaguely associated with communicating. Okay. What do you wish you really understood?
1: Languages. I've been studying French, Danish, and Italian forever, and I don't feel fluent in any.
0: Oh. And with me, it's Chinese. Mm. What do you wish other people understood about you?
1: I think they know far too much about me. They probably would love me to be quiet. I think it would surprise people how quiet I am when I'm not at work.
0: Ah. Very quiet. What's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you?
1: I don't think about questions as being strange at all. I, I really enjoy getting all of them to tell you the truth. Nothing comes to mind. I like being asked questions. I think it's fun.
0: Okay, here's a question. Okay. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh.
1: <laughs> Feed them. <laughs> they have to shut up long enough to chew or they're going to die. In which case, they'll shut up also. <laughs> It works either way. (laughs) Yeah,
0: right. Is there anyone for whom you just can't feel empathy?
1: Yes, but I'm not rude enough to say. Okay. It's an extremely short list.
0: How do you like to deliver bad news? In person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon?
1: I don't like to have to give anyone bad news, but of course I would want to be there in person, and I think it should be accompanied with a very deep embrace.
0: And a meatball.
1: And a meatball. (laughs) Meatballs make pretty much anything better.
0: Okay, last question. What, if anything, would make you end a friendship?
1: The people that I think disliked me the most in life, I still wanted to be their friend, quite frankly. I I don't think I give up on people. I never have. I don't know what would end a friendship. That person, I guess, just stops calling.
0: Hmm. Well, I'll call you later. I love you. <laughs> You're great. I love you. Thank you so much. It's just you. great. You're so generous to do this.
1: Are you kidding? This is a thrill. That was so fun.
0: This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear goes to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. Rachel Ray is vivacious and energetic, and she has this way of brightening everyone around her. She's always thinking, always moving, and always doing, which makes her one of the most interesting people I've ever met. And not only does she have a good story for everything, which I love, she also has a recipe, too. And she really thinks about how to pair food and people to inspire conversation. That's an art in itself. Rachel's program, The Rachel Ray Show, is nationally syndicated. So visit rachelrayshow.com for details about where and when to watch. You can also find all of her cookbooks, recipes, good advice, and much more on her website. This episode was produced by Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or from wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, Jaron Lanier... Sharon was there at the beginning. He helped build the internet. And he was one of the creators of virtual reality. But now he thinks something has gone very wrong with our new digital world. Something very, very wrong. And this at a time when we communicate with one another, it seems, more through social media than actual socialization. The bad thing is the manipulation. The problem is that these platforms, and I mean specifically things like YouTube facebook twitter um, the only way they can make money is when somebody is paying them out of the belief that they'll be able to manipulate the users that's their only economic incentive there's nothing else Sharon lanier next on clear and vivid subscribe and listen for free on apple podcasts stitcher or wherever you like to listen and find me online and on twitter at alan alda